Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, coming to you from two SER studios in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. Broadcast right around Australia on the Community Radio Network and around the world, wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. For many people with disability, air travel can be associated with anxiety, discomfort and long waits. In more severe cases, flying can be the cause of trauma and even human rights violations. For tourism activities and destinations themselves, much of the time accessibility is often defined in the physical sense, notwithstanding the larger proportion of Australians living with sensory, intellectual or invisible disability. Today on the show, we're looking at accessible tourism, where we are, what we're getting wrong, what we're doing well, the opportunities available to business, and how some organisations are finally understanding and capitalising on this huge yet neglected portion of the market. I'm joined here in the studio by Simon Darcy, Professor of Social Inclusion at the UTS Business School, and remotely by Ben Gauntlet, Disability Discrimination Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission. Simon, Ben, Welcome to Think Business Futures. Thanks very much, Stefan. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks very much, Stefan. We're going to be talking about accessible tourism today. We're going to start at the airport. Simon, uh, a lot of people have no understanding of the realities of what travel is like for people with disability. So to start, what's the experience of flying around Australia in a wheelchair like? What are some of the big challenges? The challenges start with planning your trip and being able to identify the different carriers and what their policies are on assisted service for people with disability. And they do vary tremendously between the full-cost airlines and those that are regarded as either low-cost or budget airlines. And we're talking some aspects of business. Uh, Many people with disability come from a lower socioeconomic group. Many of them have uh, some sort of social support, hence to travel they're not being accommodated by budget carriers that would actually make uh, their cost situation far more bearable. So already we've got some issues with where they're able to get to depending on what sort of disability. So you, know, you already mentioned about wheelchair users, and that's very different to the experience for people who are blind or hearing impaired, those with intellectual disability and people with other sorts of psychosocial disability. So right off the bat, you've got a complexity, and that's quite often what creates a great deal of issues for understanding the lived experience of people with disability in a flying situation. So we see all sorts of issues arise with, sure, equipment and the way that equipment is handled. Of course, people that have got assistance animals also run into a lot of uh, issues with the way their assistant animal is treated. And of course, we're coming out of a COVID situation where in a business sense, a lot of workers with a great deal of experience in baggage handling and supporting people with disability have lost their jobs. Mm. And so there's a very, very much an untrained workforce that we're coming into contact with through security, baggage handling, and personal assistance for people with disability. And that also brings us into a heightened state of anxiety that uh, sees more complaint cases going to people like Ben at the Australian Human Rights Commission. Ben, from what I understand, Australia doesn't stack up very well compared to a lot of other parts of the world. So what are we getting wrong here? We need to, I think, 
be very clear that when it comes to travel, that people with disability need to be treated as equals. And sometimes our systems work where a person can seamlessly book online, get to the airport, get onto the plane with some assistance. But what unfortunately has tended to happen is when we're at less populated locations or when people are traveling at odd times, when people are traveling with low cost airlines, we have difficulties. And this extends to the use of assistance, animals, equipment, but also the conception of how disability is treated. So when a lot of people think of someone with a disability, they think of a person in a wheelchair. That's actually the minority in terms of people with disability. 80% of disability is invisible by nature. And so it's extends to issues such as how people book, how we interact with them, um, how we deal with such things as psychosocial disability. And so I think it's really important that when we consider Australia versus the rest of the world, that we consider people with disability in totality. Mm. Whilst we do have systems and processes in place that are or look to be able to achieve the outcomes we hope for, sadly in regional areas or in um, when people are flying in the middle of the night, or when it's not fully staffed, or when there's issues that crop up, there can be profound issues. And it really does, unfortunately, manifest itself dramatically because of our geographic isolation and the expanse of where we live and causes really significant challenges for people with disability. Simon, do you agree with that? Is it something we're trying to get right and we're moving towards? Or is there a difference in the structure here in Australia versus in other places where it might be somewhat more accessible to fly? Yeah, we've been mentioning the word travel and tourism and other things. But in the essence, we're needing to access an accessible transport system, not just for holidays, But people like Ben and others who have got a national reach with their jobs uh, have to be able to efficiently uh, and effectively book, get there on time, do their thing and get home. The, The knowledge that you require to be confident with that takes a few years for most people to get on board and build up that experience so that rather than every time you fly, feeling anxious about whether the person on the reception desk has been trained properly in their customer service procedures. Um, and, you know, you don't get a, a comment like, um, what, you want to fly with that? Uh, you know, uh, talking about a person's chair, through to um, whether your equipment makes it to the other end, which means if they're not there, you're really caught in a difficult place if it is regional or, or even worse, remote. And there aren't those, uh, you know, major metropolitan centres where you're able to rent or get access to other things. So that idea of being highly anxious at every leg of your journey means that, you know, some people will not travel unless they can drive there in a car or find another means uh, to do that. Ben, what's the type of real change that needs to take place? Does everyone involved, whether it's government, airlines, people who run airports and that sort of thing need, need to take a step back and, and do we need a complete restructure? Where are we at in terms of making the necessary changes? I think we need to look at reforming the Disability Discrimination Act and the transport standards which sit under that act to make them fit for purpose. Uh, our conceptions of transport have changed since the Disability Discrimination Act was drafted in 1992 
and our reliance on transport has also trained. And we need to collect data. We need to look at enforcing regulations and legislation where the enforcement mechanism is not reliant on an individual to be challenging a large multinational corporation, but instead there is a mechanism for a regulator to come in and potentially um, award civil penalties against that transport operator and or to look into matters of egregious conduct. And we need to also then educate airlines as to what is best practice, to reward best practice and to make airlines and other travel operators be aware that almost one in five Australians live with disability. It's an enormous part of the market in Australia, but it's also an enormous global opportunity for us to have people with disability come to Australia as tourists. And so if we get this right, we open up a large section of business. If we get it right up front, it can almost certainly be done economically And if we do it in a manner that's dignified and respectful, we can have all Australians travel the country, see families and friends in person and live as an equal to others, which I think everyone in Australia wants. Absolutely. Simon, are there any places that are getting it right, that are setting the standard in terms of best practice? In airports in Europe over a certain size, you have a designated group that deal with all airline transfers for assisted transfer. And that means that you're being dealt with across the airport by a team that's been designated, trained incredibly well, and they're literally doing hundreds of assisted access and egress every day. Their experience is terrific. They also are a very calming influence. And of course, we haven't actually spoken about other groups like psychosocial or people with autism who have other issues. And that that is um, having issues with being out of routine, not knowing what to expect and having the need for some quiet spaces uh, within what is generally, uh, you know, hard, flawed, reflected light, noisy and chaotic experience. So that's one example of what could be done across the major airports in Australia. Mm. It would obviously be a challenge in those regional airports. Mm, Okay. Now, Simon, I'll ask a bit of a devil's advocate question because obviously the provision of resources towards alleviating that anxiety and providing training and the proper staff is a cost to airlines. Airline people might say, you know, we've had it tough over COVID, even though we did get government support and things like that. The devil's advocate question is, where is the line in terms of the amount of resources that go into this and and how much it affects an airline's bottom line and where the government responsibility comes into it? Yeah, I'll come back to that difference between full-cost airlines and uh, low-cost or budget airlines. The the full-cost airlines certainly have done a very good job at understanding the market, what's required for those assisted transfers and being able to do that within their business model. It's also not about me as an individual. It's about me as in my social roles, whether that's family traveling with at least two other people whenever I make trips, uh, those people with children, those people with in business situations uh, like I am when I'm traveling for university work that is part of the, you know, the economy and a very important part of that economy. Ben, do you want to just potentially expand a bit on, on Simon's point there and maybe elaborate on that difference between full cost and, and budget airlines? Uh, Sure. In terms of the difference between full cost and budget airlines, this relates to a 2012 decision concerning Jetstar and 
that their business model was not designed to carry two wheelchairs at the same time and relying on a defence under the Disability Discrimination Act called unjustifiable hardship. And what that defence is designed to do is to make sure that when an organisation is looking at providing reasonable adjustments, that it's not overly burdensome for them to do so. And it reflects an underlying human rights proposition of reasonable accommodation being provided to people with disability to take into account difference so that you might treat difference differently to achieve an equality of opportunity. The idea behind that defence is to ensure that you don't have small businesses having incredibly onerous, onerous obligations to achieve certain outcomes. But I think the first thing I'd say is a lot of airlines are not small business and that they should have designed with people with disability thought of up front. In COVID, there has been a considerable amount of economic stimulus provided into the airline industry. And I think a balance of that is to ensure that it is to the fullest extent accessible. And what we should be doing going forward is not saying that a decision 10 years ago should define how airline policy works in Australia, but for all forms of transport, and that's just not airlines, it includes railway, it includes taxis, it includes ferries and things of that nature, we should be trying to make sure that all people with disability can to the fullest extent possible be included and be part of the general population in terms of how they access those services. And so where we do have these bottlenecks or these issues that are presently problematic, we should be looking to innovate and regulate to ensure that they do not occur over the long term, but they're merely a short-term issue which we can work through and around to ensure people with disability are included as equals going forward. Mm, okay. We'll change direction a little bit here and we'll talk about accessible tourism more broadly. Simon, you've done a vast amount of work in this field. Do you want to sort of explain a bit what is meant by accessible tourism? What are some of the touch points that we focus on and, and give us a background of some of the work that you've been doing? So you know, a, a definition around uh, accessible tourism is that it's a collaborative process with all stakeholders in the uh, value chain around tourism. And so that starts with planning your trip. One of the touch points that's always been problematic is finding a travel agent that actually understands what those inclusive practices are across the um, travel industry and remembering the travel industry includes things uh, like accommodation. You can't go anywhere if you can't stay somewhere. The attractions that are there, the destination management itself. So think of towns like the uh, main precinct in Cairns. Being uh, able to have an equality of experience to non-disabled when it comes to those activities on offer. So with those stakeholders, you said not to be in tourism if you're not targeting a market and collaborating with those other businesses in an area. And Cairns is a really good example and a fellow called Ian Chill, ex-Navy working with Cairns Council, has done some great jobs on making the planning easy through really good explanation of the hotels that have got reasonable accessibility the experiences that are accessible, everything from crocodile farms through to um, getting out to the reef. New operators poking up post-COVID around diving experiences and learning experiences and having an understanding that disability is part of lifespan. So as people age, they tend to get higher levels of disability. And so being inclusive of people across lifespan. Hmm. And our own research, uh, the National Visitor Survey, has independently identified those issues 
and uh, valued tourism and um, disability already as an $8 billion industry across uh, those issues. So, Mm. you know, it's happening, but it's not happening with a great awareness from industry. Mm, Okay. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Think Business Futures here on 2SER 107.3. My name's Stefan Postuma. I'm your host, and I'm joined here in the studio by Simon Darcy from the UTS Business School and remotely by Ben Gauntlet, Disability Discrimination Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission. Ben, shall we just elaborate a little bit on how people with different types of disability experience tourism? I think that on a very basic level, people think, all right, well, accessibility means ramps, people with wheelchairs getting on transport and that sort of thing. Do you want to just elaborate a bit on some of the other aspects of accessible tourism there are to cater for people with other types of disability? Sure. I think uh, when we consider disability, we have to acknowledge that Disability is diverse and people with disability are diverse too. Disability can include, for example, sensory disability such as blindness or hearing loss. It can include cognitive disability or psychosocial disability. It may include episodic disability or um, disability which is invisible in nature. And it is very important to understand that for every person with disability, their interactions are different and that to really understand that person's experience, the best way to do it is to ask that individual how they've experienced it. But from what the information that I receive in terms of people's experiences is what is often not considered is that for people to communicate or to access booking, there is a lack of awareness of electronic accessibility. So the ability to access the computer systems, reliance on smartphones or ticketing practices. Then when you come to using the service itself, there can be misapprehension as to the ability of that person to understand instructions or to be communicated with in the same way. And then I think finally, I guess, in terms of how people with disability interact with tourism and hotels and things of that nature, people can misapprehend that just because you deal with the entry and exit to a venue and you make that accessible, that the actual experience for the individual whilst there is the same. And that's not always the case. We need to take into account such things as lighting and sensory disability and sensitivities that may exist in relation to that concept. So we know that disability is different, but we know that universal design is often good for everyone. What we want to say to tourism operators everywhere is, if you design with universal design in mind, you have more customers we're going to be more loyal and you're going to get more business. It's going to be better for you. It's going to be better for Australia as well. Mm. Simon, we're now talking about the economics of accessible tourism. Is it problematic in a way that we kind of have to present the business case for accessible tourism in, in the hope that change occurs? Or do we look at this as sort of a tool used in in progress, it's an interesting question to have to ask, to have to make the point, look, this is why you should implement accessibility strategies because it's going to make you money. Yeah, look, uh, I've been uh, living in a chair since a traumatic accident in, you know, 37 years ago. There's been, you know, strides of improvement in Australia around these issues. But the conceptualisation is that disability evolves. And so the issues that we've started to talk about today Uh, like people with autism and what their needs are in venues. And I'll give you a cracker of an example there. Australian Museum have put in some quiet spaces and sensory rooms, and we're seeing uh, stadiums doing this now on a regular basis. So families can go and enjoy the activity they want to enjoy 
without needing to feel like they're not going to be included. And then they start to advertise this on their website and all of a sudden they start to find their bookings are going up because they're not only saying we've got an accessible and inclusive experience for you, but because they're advertising it, it shows that they want them there. And when we're talking about understanding what the experiences are that people want, think of the five senses. So, of course, if somebody is blind, then what a lot of tourism is always focused on is the visual gaze. But there are other senses like hearing and taste and smell that get all of this turned on when we're in new destination. Music, food, interpretation of what's going on in front of a person. So the idea of audio described experiences. So we're seeing our great performing arts venues building that into their programming each year in the same way that having either uh, Auslan interpretation at major events and festivals has become dead standard now. When you see politicians explaining pandemic issue, there's always an Auslan interpreter there. And so they start to build up this understanding that access isn't about ramps and lifts. And then you start to say, well, this is about the ambience of a place that I'm going to. And any of us that have been overseas, you know, you're there for all sorts of different reasons. So this is all about developing uh, you know, a latent potential. There's currently a major program being run by Austrade in the promotion of access information and business understanding in, I think it's about eight precincts and destinations around Australia at the moment. That's being run by Push Adventures. So if there's any tourism businesses listening to us, get on to Push Adventures and find out if that's uh, in any areas that are close to you. They're running a series of workshops around familiarity and also making people understand about how they can increase the value chain and the business offer by keeping people in their region for longer through having a selection of activities to be able to do that's also multi-generational, you know, we uh, holiday with family, etc. Or you make it that much more interesting to business travelers that have got disability as well. So they'll tack on a day or two at the end or run it, run that into a weekend. But unless we know about it, we can't do it. And getting that expertise out there, we're starting to build up some really exciting offers for people as we come back into resetting for a better normal, uh, as I've been calling it. There are some really cool new startup businesses in this space. Also, these, a lot of these new businesses have disability expertise in them, either as the founder of those organizations or employing people with disability and valuing their lived experience in developing training programs and also doing what Ben said, getting their uh, information communication technology and websites in order so people can access information no matter what their disability and go about planning a great trip away, whether it's overnight to the Blue Mountains or up to Cairns from Sydney, for example. Mm, okay. Ben, to extend on Simon's point there, he mentioned a lot of examples of how private enterprise are taking advantage of, of, of opportunities and, and pushing forward. What's the onus on local councils and, and government policy to, to work with private enterprise in this space? I really think that when we consider people with disability in Australia and the economics relating to travel, we should consider perhaps some of the research that's been done in the United Kingdom. Now, in the United Kingdom, a study called the Purple Pound revealed that the spending power of households with a person with disability living in it was £274 billion per year. So when you 
make your locations accessible and by accessible i mean more than just physically accessible but accessible to all different people with disability you open up not only the economics of those individuals being included but also the benefits to society of us having a diverse population of ensuring that families and friends are together and that what we can then do is to make sure that we have people with disability present and able to participate equally. The government has a role in obviously setting the law, but I think at a local government level, what can be done is to promote the benefits of disability inclusion. We know that to create change in society requires not only individuals, but also organisations to be engaged. And it's not just sometimes about laws, it's about publicising events, promoting good practice, ensuring that when you procure particular organisations to do things with you, they always have accessibility at the front of their mind. And then what we try and do is to make sure that that good practice is emphasised throughout the community so it becomes the norm and so that universal design in the offering of goods and services is the norm for every location in Australia going forward. Okay. It's about time for us to wrap up. Simon, I'll finish with you. Do you want to just extend on Ben's point there about where we've got to go and and what the future might look like? If you're not considering disability and those people that are their families and associates in a work environment, then you're not developing your business to to be appropriate, then effective, and then efficient. Because I think all businesses want as many people using their services that can be there. So in the tourism space, we've seen, you know, Agenda 2030, also the linking with the Sustainable Development Goals, very explicit around the disability space. We've also seen that the um, APEC, I always forget what it stands for, they've also run workshops with operators in Australia and in the um, South Pacific about improving their access and inclusion. And when you start to put the jigsaw puzzle together, there's a real potential to see some major improvements as we come back from COVID. There's some obvious challenges there where I was at an industry conference last week from the major venues in Australia, and they were talking about their businesses not just being ready, but being fit for the new purpose and also being fit for business again so that it's becoming second nature. You know, 18 months to two years is a long time Mm. not to have that operation. And a lot of organizations have lost staff. So this is a perfect time to reach out for training, get some good access and inclusion training in place and make sure that whatever your new business plan is doing, it's able to cater for as many people from the community as possible, whether they have a disability or not. And you can add to that those that are aging over lifespan people from the LGBTISQA+, and those people that have any other form of marginalisation, because we find that these things compound when people have identify uh, with more than one identity. Okay, well, there's obviously so much opportunity there, a lot of work to do. That is all we have time for. Simon here in the studio and Ben remotely, thanks for joining me here on Think Business Futures. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Think Business Futures. Thank you to my guests, Simon Darcy and Ben Gauntlet. You can listen and share this chat wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to get Think Business Futures in your feed each week. And please support the show by leaving a review. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, and I'll see you again somewhere in the world of business next week.